Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. This episode contains audio excerpted courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio from Midnight in Washington by Adam Schiff, read by the author. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. There is no doubt that our democracy remains threatened. Donald Trump and those who supported his election lies and other corruption continue to exert influence over our political system. And the rise of authoritarianism in America risks everything we hold dear. In his new book, Midnight in Washington, How We Almost Lost Our Democracy and Still Could, Congressman Adam Schiff examines this threat and shares his behind-the-scenes story of confronting it. What do we want to learn from Adam Schiff's testimony? From which? From Adam Schiff. I learned nothing from Adam Schiff. Well, well, I think he's a maniac. What do you want to learn if he testifies? I think Adam Schiff is a deranged human being. President Trump's abuse of his office and obstruction of Congress will permanently alter the balance of power among the branches of government. Rewriting history is something usually associated with communists and confederates. But we're witnessing an attempt to rewrite history around January 6th in real time. What is your reaction to what we now know to be the substance uh, of the lawsuit Donald Trump has brought to try to block this material? Not at all surprising. Uh, he wants to block the committee from finding out about uh, his conduct on January 6th. I am Congressman Adam Schiff, and I'm fighting to protect our democracy from Trump Republicans. Sorry, not sorry. We have so much to talk about. I don't even know where to begin, but let's start at the beginning of the book. And you start the beginning of the book on January 6th, but I want to back up a little bit earlier than that because you share a lot of your background that I think people may not know. First of all, you grew up in a bipartisan household, which I found fascinating. Tell us about that and how you think it influenced the way you approach your work today. Thank you for having me on. I'm a fan and it's uh, really terrific to be back on your podcast. Congratulations on your own incredible book. It's nice of you to take the time in the midst of your own launch. Uh, so thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for your support. You've been so supportive of, of all of my activism, and I really appreciate that. But this is about you. I want to know what it was like growing up in a bipartisan house. How did that influence the way you approach your work? It must have. It, it did. It did. My mother uh, was from a long line of Republicans. I have a wonderful photograph on my wall that's also in the book of my mother's father, Harry Glovsky, who was a Eisenhower delegate. And he's standing with Eisenhower and Henry Cabot Lodge. Uh, he was uh, an example of what we used to call Rockefeller Republican, fiscally conservative, socially very progressive. That part of the Republican Party doesn't exist anymore. Even the conservative wing of the Republican Party doesn't exist anymore. It's It's become this anti-truth, autocratic cult around the former president. But back in the day, it was a very different party. And my mother came from a long line of Republicans. My father, on the ha other hand, came from a long line of Democrats, a New Deal, Roosevelt Democrats. And it was never contentious in our home. I think my folks raised my brother and myself to believe that neither party had a monopoly on good judgment all the time, and that we needed to treat the views of others with respect. But I suspect if my mother were alive today, she passed away about 10 years ago, she wouldn't recognize the Republican Party. Indeed, during her lifetime, she saw it move farther and farther away from the party of her parents' roots, and I think long since ceased to vote Republican, but I think would find it unrecognizable today. What do you think needs to happen to get back to that 
I think that the Republican Party, we really need at least two parties, functional parties uh, in this country. And right now we only have one. The Republican Party needs to return to its roots, to being a party of an ideology. But how do we get there? It feels like that's never going to happen, in my lifetime at least. Or do you have faith that we'll get back to that place? I do have faith in that. I think that uh, I would like to believe that Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger represent the future of the Republican Party. The question is, is that a near future or is that a long distant future? And it's not really going to be up to us to make that determination. What we can do, frankly, to help that along is just to make sure that we dominate the elections, that we repudiate, we turn out our numbers, we repudiate Donald Trump and Trumpism. The only thing that would cause the Republican Party to cease being a cult of the former president is to decide it's a losing strategy politically. And so we need to make it a losing strategy by making sure that we register our people, that we turn out our people, that we pass HR1 and voting rights uh, legislation. If we do our jobs, we can help speed the collapse of this cult around Donald Trump. Before you were elected to office, you spent time as a lawyer advising former Iron Curtain nations after the fall of communism. In particular, you were in Czechoslovakia after the Velvet Revolution and watched basically as a Trump-like Slovak literally tore that country in two. So what did that experience teach you? And what lesson should we all learn in America today from those countries and their rebuilding them? I had a really uh, you know, fascinating experience. I spent half a year in the Eastern Bloc uh, living in the former Czechoslovakia. When I arrived there in early 1992... There are few things more powerful during times of economic turmoil than xenophobic populism. And it was in Czechoslovakia that I would first witness the nation-altering impacts of an unscrupulous leader who could skillfully tap the anxieties and resentments of his fellow citizens to drive change. Vladimir Mechiar would take the jarring increase in income inequality following the collapse of communism and use it to propel not only his own rise, but a literal division of the country that only months earlier seemed fanciful. It was one country, Czechoslovakia, but there was a xenophobic populist running to be Slovak prime minister, Vladimir Mechiar. And I got to witness just how destructive and divisive his brand of xenophobic populism was, blaming the situation for those that were not doing well economically in Slovakia, blaming it on the Czechs, blaming it on the Hungarian-speaking population, blaming it on the Romani population. And I, when I first got there, I remember meeting with the chief justice of the Czechoslovak Supreme Court, who told me the country was never going to split. And then a few months later, he told me it was all but inevitable. And I got to see just the power of that kind of divisive rhetoric that Mechiar used to literally tear a country apart in a matter of months. And I never thought I would see anything or experience anything like what I witnessed there in the United States. What we saw in Czechoslovakia had happened in other countries around the world, but I had never seen it or expected to see it in the United States. And yet when Donald Trump entered the scene, it certainly brought back a strong visceral memories from my time in Czechoslovakia feels like it happened very quickly in this country. I want to go back because when you were first elected to Congress, you uh, took office in January of 2001. And many of my listeners will remember that the country was pretty divided back then, too, with the contested election of George W. Bush uh, having just been resolved a couple of months before you took office. So I want to ask you, what was different between then and now? Were there signs of what was to come? Uh, I'm not sure there were signs that early of what was to come. Ironically, and I, I write about this in Midnight in Washington, I ran against an impeachment house manager, a, a manager of the Bill Clinton impeachment. And in our election, our district had been always a Republican district. And it was my sense and my opponent's sense, a guy named Jim Rogan, that whoever brought up the impeachment would be punished that it split the district in half. And neither was campaigned for or against it, but it drove a lot of resources to the race. It became kind of a national referendum on impeachment and was the most expensive race in history at that time and would keep that title for another 10 years after that race. But what was most notable about that first term in Congress was that 9-11 happened only months into my first term in Congress. And what really differed from today is 
9-11 was an external attack on the country, and it really brought the country together. It brought the Congress together. The most memorable moment, apart from pouring through the streets, walking, trying to get to the Capitol after the planes had hit the World Trade Center and hearing an explosion when one of the planes had hit the Pentagon and there was a secondary explosion. And apart from the chaos of that day, what I vividly remember also was gathering on the steps of outside the Capitol, Democrats and Republicans together to sing God Bless America. After January 6th, I knew in the wake of that chaos that this was not going to be the kind of tragedy that brought the country together because the attack on January 6th came from within. And in that respect, very different time and place now from where we were back in 2000. In an effort to prove that up was down and black was white, Republicans during the hearings had attempted to portray the president as a great anti-corruption crusader, motivated only by helping Ukraine along the path toward a firmly established rule of law. This was, of course, an absurdity. So a decade after you took office, there's a story where you were on a plane with Kevin McCarthy, who is now the Republican leader in the House. Can you tell my listeners about that experience? Yes, and I I included this in the book because I'm so often asked the question, do the Republicans really believe what they're saying? What do they tell you when they're in private? And this story, it tells a lot about what Republicans say in private and in public, but also sheds light on on Kevin McCarthy's character or lack of character and make himself the speaker. People need to know just what a terrible danger that would be for the country. So I'm flying back to Washington. The year is 2010. I'm seated just coincidentally next to Kevin McCarthy. I really had never had a conversation with him before because his district was far from mine and we weren't on the same committees. And we're having the kind of nothing of a conversation that you have uh, before the movie starts, any movie. And uh, our conversation was about who was going to win the midterms, which were then six months away. And Congress uh, then, like now, was very evenly divided. And I said that Democrats were going to win the midterms. And he said he thought Republicans were going to win the midterms. And it was really a nothing of a conversation. And I thought nothing of it until we got to D.C. and we went our separate ways. And unbeknownst to me, he went off to do a briefing for the press. And he told the press, Republicans are going to win the midterms, he said. Everybody knows it. I sat next to Adam Schiff on the plane on the way back from L.A. And even he admitted that Republicans were going to win the midterms. And this didn't come out until the morning that he had told the press this. And I was just apoplectic. And I rushed it to him on the House floor. And I said, Kevin, first of all, if we're having a private conversation on the plane, I would have thought it was a private conversation. But if it wasn't, you know, you told the press the exact opposite of what I said. And he looks at me and he says, yeah, I know, Adam, but you know how it goes. And I said, no, Kevin, I don't, I don't know how it goes. You just make shit up and that's how you operate because that's not how I operate. But that is how he operates. And in that respect, he was really made for a time like this when the leader of his party cares nothing about the truth, uh, lies constantly. And you do anything, you say anything to take power. And that's who Kevin McCarthy is. And someone like that just can never be permitted to go anywhere near the speaker's office. I mean, I'm just fascinated by the psychology of this group of Republicans and how they're so oblivious to any moral compass at all. It really makes me feel like none of these people had people in their lives that they could look up to in a way that reflected honesty and goodness and integrity, which I feel like is really what is very terrifying about this moment in history. When I was a kid, there was there were always politicians that I, or elected officials that I could look up to and say, wow, they're in this for the right reason. They're in this. And it just feels like specifically with the Republican Party, there are so few. And it almost feels like the people that are members of the party that are more exploitive are the ones that get all the press making them even more famous, which it's like if you look at any sort of industry where fame is involved, 
You have to be good at your job to become famous. It feels like as an elected official on the Republican side, you, you just need to be loud and you need to sort of be okay with having no integrity and lying. And then the scariest part of all of that is they think the same thing about us. And that's the impasse. I don't know how we get by. I want to ask you, and I've wanted to ask you every time I interview you, but I think now is, is the most appropriate time. When I say the word Benghazi, what comes to your mind? What comes to my mind is the, the terrible exploitation of the tragic death of four Americans by Kevin McCarthy, Trey Gowdy, and the Republicans who were determined to use this tragedy to tear down Hillary Clinton's numbers. Over the next four years, Trump would become so fixated on finding Clinton's email server and any personal emails that had been deleted from it that he would seek the help of Russia and then Ukraine to do so, imperiling his presidency and the security of our country. Destructive in its own right, the politicization of the attack on the U.S. diplomatic facilities in Benghazi was the bridge to a Republican future in which facts no longer mattered and those who exposed the truth would become enemies of the people. Up would be down, black would be white, and American constitutional democracy would be in grave danger. That, to me, was a, a bridge to a future Republican Party in which nothing was uh, off bounds and in which they would weave conspiracy theories that were nowhere remotely uh, akin to the truth. And they were content to do so and push them out through their media amplifier on Fox News. And now Fox is joined by Newsmax and OAN. To me, Benghazi, we had, we had done five or six investigations of Benghazi on a bipartisan basis, all of which debunked these conspiracy theories. And that wasn't enough. So they decided to set up a select committee for the purpose of tearing down Hillary's numbers. And they did. And it succeeded, uh, tragically succeeded. And if Donald Trump had been watching, this was 2016 before he was elected, he must have been really thrilled to see what you could do by just repeating a big lie over and over again. And so that's what Benghazi means to me. There's one other part of Benghazi, though, that has a very different meaning to me. And that is, I used to say that I want the two years I had to spend on that committee back, uh, my life back, except for one thing. And that is, I got to know Elijah Cummings. Elijah Cummings was our ranking member on that committee. And I got to study by his side. And he was just such the moral North Star of our caucus. And that was an unmitigated pleasure is to sit by his side and get to know him. So I treasure that part of that experience. Can you pinpoint one or the most important thing that Elijah Cummings taught you? I think what he taught me was a couple things. First, to really think big about what we were doing, to think about the message that we were sending through our children, our grandchildren to the next generation, what we wanted to leave behind, our legacy, and, and to be guided by that. He also taught me as a legislator, as a chairman, as a fellow member of Congress, how to be completely present in a moment. And I remember during the hearing with Hillary Clinton that lasted for, I was 11 hours or 13 hours. It was uh, endless. At the end, I, I did a closing statement. And because the hearing had gone on so long, I didn't feel the obligation to use all the time I had. And Elijah asked me if I would, I would yield him the rain, remainder of my time. And I did. And he gave this incredible close in which he talked about something that I had brought out in my questioning, but he did such a better job at highlighting how they were attacking Hillary Clinton and suggesting that she was complicit in something that resulted in the death of one of her friends, Ambassador Stevens. And Elijah said, you know, I don't know what you're trying to do here, meaning the Republicans. You just want to badger her and badger and badger her until you get this gotcha moment that you're open for. And he said, we're better than that. We're a better country than that. We're better than using taxpayer dollars to try to vilify a candidate for president this way. And, and then he said, he got a pause and he said, I'm sorry, I just had to, you don't have to respond to that, Secretary. I just had to get that off my chest. And the whole audience, you know, laughed with him. And it was just a, a masterclass in how to, being, how to be present in the moment and not thinking about what questions you were going to ask later before or whatnot, but just listening to what's being said and responding to it. I want us to just cut to when you saw Trump coming down that escalator 
just surrounded by actors that he paid to be there. Did you think at that moment there was any chance he would become president? No, I thought there was no chance. And I, I used to tell this joke during that Republican primary that there was no way that Donald Trump was going to win the primary for two reasons. The first is that Republicans weren't that suicidal. Back in my personal office in Washington the following week, I found my staff devastated by the election. They were young and idealistic and desperately concerned about what it meant to the country and to our future. I gathered them in my office for a pep talk. I know how worried you are about the election and what the result means for all that we care about. And I just want to tell you by way of encouragement, we are fucked. I smiled dejectedly and said that I knew this was not the pep talk they were expecting, but that I just wasn't up to it, not yet. And I promised them that I would have more to say after I gathered my own bearings. Uh, and the second was Democrats weren't that lucky. Turns out Republicans were that suicidal and we were not that lucky. And I would have never imagined in a million years that a complete and total grifter like Donald Trump, uh, a total con like him, could become president of the United States. But he did. And, you know, just to give you a, a sense of the grift, I like to point to one thing just to just to convey what a complete and total grifter he is, but really what a, an accomplished grifter he is. The guy runs for president on a platform of building a wall that he says Mexico is going to pay for. An absurd idea uh, to begin with. He becomes president. Of course, he doesn't build a wall, and there was no way in hell that Mexico was going to pay for it. Uh, and so his cronies start raising money from his own supporters to supposedly build a wall. They steal it. And then he pardons them for stealing from his own people. It really is unbelievable. If there is a scenario that were to sum up his followers and why they looked to him as being a leader, I think it's that story. He is a very gifted con man. But it is extraordinary that someone that, that has no ethical compass, someone who supposedly campaigned on draining the swamp and turn the swamp into a complete and utter cesspool could ever be a credible candidate for anything. But his incompetent handling of the pandemic resulted in the loss of hundreds of thousands of American lives. He shouldn't be a candidate for anything. It feels like, as an outsider's perspective, really their only policy. We, as Democrats, we actually have policy to help the American people, to help how people are struggling. And from an outsider looking in, I don't even know what policy the Republican has right now other than to continue and to make more powerful this idea of oppression. It's either voter suppression, it's, it's oppressing a woman's right to choose and control her own destiny. And I feel like, unfortunately, Democrats have had to play defense instead of progress. We don't want the things that we've already fought for to be rolled back. Do you think that's true? Do you feel like that? I do. I, I absolutely feel that way. And the Republican Party right now is hostile to the idea of democracy. They're going around the country pushing the big lie to usher in a new generation of Jim Crow laws to make it harder for black and brown people to vote. And they're stripping independent elections officials of their duties and giving them over to partisans. If they couldn't get the Secretary of State of Georgia to find 11,780 votes, they seem determined to make sure they have people in those jobs who will stop the ballot box if Donald Trump tells them to next time. Tucker Carlson, who is, if this is the right term for it, the thought leader of the Republican Party, is extolling the model of Viktor Orban, the wannabe dictator in Hungary. A conservative political action committees are hosting their conventions in Budapest because they're celebrating the authoritarian model. They're just not committed to democracy at this moment in their history. And as long as that's the case, they're just going to have to be beaten. We're just going to have to defeat them at the polls. There's no accommodating a party that doesn't share a devotion to our democracy. When he took office, was there any confidence that someone, that Trump would have people around him who would have best interests of the country in mind and would just basically keep him in check? There were a couple people like that who were drummed out of the administration. 
Well, Secretary Mattis, uh, the defense secretary, was very well respected, and there was confidence that he would try to restrain the worst impulses of the president. Dan Coats was the head of the, the intelligence agencies, former Republican senator of Indiana. And in both of those cases, Mattis resigned because basically he was not going to do anything he thought would endanger the country or was unethical or wrong. And he resigned in protest. Dan Coats would not carry the president's big lies about Russia or North Korea, and he was fired. And I respect that. What we did see, though, with respect to most of the other positions, is that Trump filled them with sycophants. And when any of them were asked to do things immoral or unethical, they generally did, and they rationalized it by saying, if I didn't stay and do these unethical things, whoever came after me would be worse. But some of them got to the point where even they couldn't go along with the corruption in the administration, and they left, and they were followed by people worse. But nonetheless, there was a never-ending stream of people willing to completely debase themselves to serve with Donald Trump. And, uh, you know, it gets back to one of the, the themes running through Midnight in Washington is something that the historian Robert Carroll once said, which is power doesn't corrupt as much as it reveals. It doesn't always reveal us for our best, but it says a lot about who we are. Power revealed, for example, Bill Barr to be an utterly craven human being, you know, willing to use the Justice Department to go ever after Donald Trump's enemies and willing to use the Justice Department to reduce the sentence of people who were convicted of lying to cover up for the president, like Roger Stone or others, uh, to make the whole case go away, like other liars like Michael Flynn, who was convicted, uh, pled guilty twice to lying to the FBI about the Trump campaign's connections to Russia and his own campaign connections. Barr's summary was the first draft of the history of the special counsel's investigation of the president. And it was a deliberate and monstrous deception. With it, Trump and his allies seized control of the narrative and they used it to bury the truth. They also used it to try to bury me. Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson filled the airways with condemnations of the Russia hoax, portraying me as a sinister conspiracist whose fertile imagination defamed and imperiled the president of the United States. So this was the story. And, and one of the principal reasons I wrote the book is there have been a lot written about what happened in the Trump White House. There wasn't much written about what happened in Congress over the last four years. And I wanted to tell the story of how many, so many people that I worked with on the Republican side of the aisle, many of whom I respected because I believe that they believed what they were saying turned out not to care at all about what they were saying. It was all about maintaining their position in Congress or maybe getting a better position in the cabinet. And that story of how people came to enable Donald Trump's tearing down of our democracy is the one I wanted to tell, because had there not been all of these accomplices in Congress, Donald Trump couldn't have done any of the things that he did to tear down our democratic institutions. Let's get into the Russia investigation and the path to the first impeachment. Yes, it became very clear uh, during the campaign that the Russians were actively engaged in trying to elect Donald Trump. In the weeks and months to come, he would go even further, inventing a whole new version of events, one in which I had somehow received a copy of the call record before it was public and thought I could mislead the country about what it really said. But Trump had foiled me by ordering the release of the transcript. He would tell this fanciful story gleefully at rallies, and his allies in Congress took up the cause, even introducing a resolution to censure me over the faux outrage. If it hadn't been apparent to me before, it was readily clear to me now. Trump needed a villain, and I was it. And I tell the story in the book of being in the bunker, which is what we call the Intelligence Committee space three floors below the Capitol, and getting a call from Senator Feinstein, who was my Democratic counterpart on the Senate Intelligence Committee. We were the two top Democrats on those two committees. And she called me and basically said, are you seeing what I'm seeing? referring to the Russian uh, clandestine efforts to elect Trump. And I said, I sure am. And he was worried about as I am. And I was. And we called on the Obama administration to call out the Russians on what they were doing. And for a long time, we couldn't get them to do it. And Senator Feinstein and I issued our own public statement about what the Russians were doing and why. Ultimately, the, Biden, the Obama administration did acknowledge the Russians were trying to interfere, but it was too little and too late. And after the election, it was it felt to our committee in the House Intelligence 
committee to investigate the Russian interference and the many worrying indications that the Trump campaign had been colluding with the Russians. And during the course of that investigation, we would learn of the most you know, shocking evidence of collusion and a lack of patriotism on behalf of the Trump campaign, including the fact that during the campaign, Donald Trump's campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, was secretly meeting with an agent of Russian intelligence named Konstantin Kalimnik and giving Russian intelligence internal campaign polling data, as well as their strategic plans for key battleground states. While that intelligence agency of the Kremlin was running the clandestine social media campaign to elect Donald Trump. And of course, there was a lot more. The Russians offered dirt on Hillary Clinton. They hacked uh, the emails of the Clinton campaign and published them through cutouts. The, the Trump campaign was in contact with the cutouts to find out the timing of the releases. The Russians approached the Trump campaign through their chairman and the president's son in a secret meeting in uh, Trump Tower in New York and lied about it and the president lied to cover it up. But the most significant thing, in my view, is that on the day Bob Mueller testified and Donald Trump finally believed he had escaped the jailer because Bob Mueller's testimony was hampered by the fact that Bob Mueller was not in the same condition that he had been in years earlier. And when Donald Trump felt that he finally escaped the jailer, it was the very next day that Donald Trump was on the phone with yet another country, this time Ukraine, trying to get their help in cheating in the next election. And that said to me that the failure to hold him accountable for his Russian misconduct led directly to even worse misconduct with respect to Ukraine. It's really just so infuriating. And as I'm listening to you, I realize that in the last year, maybe even a little bit more, I've been so focused on Biden and getting him elected and then trying to put this, I think, this time out of my head just because it's so triggering. And I'm realizing as I'm hearing you speak that that is probably how most Americans feel and how incredibly dangerous that is, that we don't continue to speak about the undoing and the misdoing because it almost means like he can restart it or reinvent himself to keep going. The first time around, I kept thinking, like, we're, we got Donald Trump because we keep talking about Donald Trump. But now I'm fearing that we're going to get a Donald Trump because we're not talking enough about this devastation that he put forth to our democracy. We'll need to see the narrative arc. And the arc is very simple and it is very frightening. And the arc is this. During the 2016 campaign, Donald Trump solicited the help of a hostile foreign power, Russia. And he got it. He got significant help from the Russians. When he felt that he was not going to be held accountable for that, he was now president of the United States and in a position to do more than ask a foreign country for their help. He could force a foreign country to help them. And so in Ukraine, he withheld hundreds of millions of dollars in military aid to extort them into smearing Joe Biden and doing a phony investigation of Joe Biden to help him win. And when he was acquitted during the Senate trial in the first impeachment, when he was acquitted of that misconduct, not because senators found that he didn't commit those acts of misconduct. In fact, Republican senators admitted that he withheld the money from Ukraine to course Ukraine to help him cheat, but they still weren't going to convict him. And when they let him off the hook again, that led directly to even greater misconduct in the 2020 election in the pushing of the big lie, in the effort to get secretaries of state like Brad Raffensperger to stuff the ballot box, uh, in his outreach to state legislators to try to get them to send an alternate slate of electors that didn't represent the popular vote from those states, and ultimately in his incitement of insurrection. So you can draw a straight line from the Russia investigation and his feeling he escaped accountability 
to his Ukraine misconduct, again feeling he escaped accountability, to insurrection. And the reason why people need to see this narrative arc is, should he ever be allowed to hold office again? Where does that straight line lead us from insurrection? It leads us to, to even greater disaster. And this country would simply not be the democracy it is if we were forced to endure another four years of that. You worked with Devin Nunes, but shortly after the news broke of the FBI's investigation, you describe him as behaving erratically. What do you think changed with him specifically? You know, before Donald Trump became president, he and I worked together extremely well. And we passed our intelligence bills. We would even text each other during Raider games. We both found ourselves uh, having the unusually <laughs> unusual trait of being uh, Oakland Raider fans. But he got to know the president during the, the 2016 campaign. After the campaign, he was asked by Donald Trump to be part of his transition team. I think that was a, a heady thing. He was helping to pick cabinet members. Uh, I think he may have played a role in the choice of Mike Flynn, as disastrous as that was. The spring of 2017 brought with it a sense of foreboding that the cherry blossoms were powerless to dispel. The president's basic immorality and his disdain for democratic institutions seemed to be spreading like a virus through the administration and federal government. Congress was not immune to this virus, and it wasn't just Devin Nunes who succumbed. I began to see a change in many of my Republican colleagues as they walked away from their commitment to our institutional responsibility as a co-equal branch of government, not to mention their own party's ideology, to gratify the president. Um, but then when we had to begin the investigation into the Trump campaign, I think he didn't want to lose his you know, seat at the table with Donald Trump. And yet, how do you investigate someone that you still uh, want to maintain that kind of close relationship with? And it ended up exploding on him when he engaged in what's come to be known as the midnight run, when he disappeared in the middle of the night to go review documents that he said showed some Obama conspiracy to surveil Donald Trump. And we would come to learn that these documents that he went to see from what he implied was some kind of a whistleblower, he'd actually gotten from the Trump White House. And the whole thing had been a charade. And when that blew up on him, even his Republican colleagues wouldn't defend him. The only people who were still willing to stick with him were Donald Trump and MAGA world. And it forged this indelible bond between Donald Trump and Devin Nunes. Prior to Donald Trump, Nunes was a John Boehner country club Republican. He was not an ideologue. In fact, one of the things he said that I, that, that I thought was so perfect during the Tea Party movement was he called the Tea Party lemmings in suicide vests. But I think that experience, that really just a transformative experience of the midnight run so blowing up and the humiliation of it, I think, just forged this indelible bond. And that, that remains to this day. In your book, you wrote, in addition to tearing Mueller and me down, Trump was aggressively trying to flip the script. He wasn't colluding with Russia. Hillary was. He hadn't done anything wrong. The FBI had. The Justice Department shouldn't be investigating him. They should be investigating the FBI. Now, I don't know if I've ever seen anything that is more like 1984 than this. What does it say about us as a nation that so many people, and especially so many elected officials, either believed him or were willing to pretend they did just for power. This was one of the realizations for me on January 6th. And, and on that day, I was on the House floor for the whole bloody insurrection. And I remember as the police kept coming on the floor to make increasingly dire warnings about needing to get out our gas masks and be prepared to get down on the ground. I remember uh, a couple of Republicans coming up to me and saying, you can't let them see you. I know these people. I can talk to these people. You're in a completely different place. And at this point, the insurrectionists were battering the doors and breaking the windows. And, you know, my first impulse was to be kind of touched that these Republicans were evidently worried about my safety. But my next impulse was to think if you hadn't been lying about the election or me for the last uh, four years, in my case, and, and, and lying about the election for the last several months, None of us would need to be worried about our safety. And later, as I watched footage of these insurrectionists 
mauling police officers and climbing on the Capitol, I realized that these insurrectionists really believe the big lie. But the people that I served with, the people across the aisle inside the chamber, people that I've taken to calling the insurrectionists in suits and ties, they knew it was a big lie. They know it is a big lie. And they're still content to push it. And even after seeing what it brought the country to, seeing literally the blood on the floor outside the chamber when we went back in to finish that, that joint session, they were still pushing the big lie. You can't let them see you, a Republican member said to me. He's right, another Republican member said. I know these people. I can talk to them. I can talk my way through them. You're in a whole different category. In that moment, we were not merely members of different political parties, but on opposite sides of a much more dangerous divide. At first, I was oddly touched by these GOP members and their evident concern. But by then, I had been receiving death threats for years, and that feeling soon gave way to another. If these Republican members hadn't joined the president in falsely attacking me for four years, I wouldn't need to be worried about my security. None of us would. I don't know if you saw a couple of weeks ago, Steve Scalise, who's the number two Republican in the House, was on Fox on Chris Wallace's program. And Wallace asked him three times, can you just say the election wasn't stolen? Can you just say the words? And he couldn't bring himself to tell the truth. And, you know, I watched that. And I thought to myself, I can't believe that when Steve Scalise ran for Congress some years ago, he said to himself, I want to run for Congress. So one day I can be part of a big lie that undermines our democracy. But then there he is. There he is now. How does that happen? And the answer is, it happens one day at a time. It happens when the president of the United States, Donald Trump, asks people in his party to do something unethical, something smallish that's unethical, and they do it. Maybe he asks them to tell a lie, which they know is a lie, and they do it. And they rationalize it by saying, well, better that I do it than whoever might follow me. And then he asks them to do something even more immoral and tell a bigger lie. And they do that, too. And pretty soon they're so far in, there's just no turning back. They're so wedded to him and to all the lies. There's no turning back because if they tried to turn back, they'd have to admit that it was all a lie and a lie that they were willing to tell. But but no, I do want to tell you because it's not all doom and gloom. There are some real heroic stories that have come out of this chapter of our, our history. People like Marie Ivanovich, this brave ambassador who was hounded out of her post, was told not to testify before Congress and defied the president and did, and showed the courage that led others to follow in her path. You know what Liz Cheney is doing right now and Adam Kinzinger. In Alyssa, in two people, you can see the story of what's happened these four years. Liz Cheney says, I'm not going to tell a big lie that undermines our democracy. And I will lose my position if I have to in public leadership, but I'm not going along with the big lie. And Elise Stefanik, on the other hand, who raised her hand and said, hey, if she won't tell the big lie, I will. If I can advance in the party, I will volunteer to tell the big lie and any other big lies you need me to tell. And in that tale of those two people, Elise Stefanik and Liz Cheney, you can see how power has revealed what people are about. Have your feelings about impeachment changed They really haven't. I don't think there's a problem with the impeachment remedy. And I think that the House was absolutely right to impeach the president, not once but twice, because his crimes were so serious uh, and impeachable. And had we not done so, we would not have done our constitutional duty. I also think that when we went into the, the first impeachment trial, I remember having this conversation with the speaker. We knew that we were very unlikely to be able to win the trial, given the the Republican senators and their devotion to Donald Trump. But I remarked that the key here is to try to win by losing. And the way we could win by losing is is keeping in mind that there were really two juries. There was the jury uh, of the senators that we were not going to win, and then there was the jury of the American people. And that was the more important jury, the American people. And I would like to think that we made the case sufficiently well that when the American people had a decision to make on election day about whether to retain Donald Trump, they decided that they couldn't do it. But the the flaw was not in the remedy of impeachment. I wouldn't want to lower the threshold so we can impeach presidents with a majority vote. That would basically turn Congress into a parliament. The flaw was the fact that so many people were not willing to live up to their oath, that if they weren't willing to apply ideas of right and wrong and, and acknowledge the, the simple truth of the matter, then none of it works. So. I maintain the same view as I did before about impeachment. 
There's nothing wrong with a remedy. The problem right now is that there aren't enough people willing to uphold their oath. I want to circle back to the conversation that you had with Kevin McCarthy about the midterms and ask you what you think is going to happen in 2022 and what we need to do as activists, as advocates to make sure that we don't lose the House. Well, first of all, should Kevin McCarthy ever become speaker, effectively Donald Trump becomes speaker because he will do whatever Donald Trump tells him to do. And, and if, if Kevin McCarthy had been speaker, if we had lost a few more seats in the House in the last election, the presidential election, Kevin McCarthy would have overturned the presidential election in the House. They would have succeeded in decertifying the results. So that man can never be allowed to become speaker. Now, the good news is that the historic trend that people keep pointing to of the president's party losing seats in the midterms presupposes a different presidential trend, which is when that president took office, in this case, Joe Biden, that they swept into office a bunch of members of the House in districts that were really not consistent demographically with the party of the president. That didn't happen in 2020. Joe Biden did not have coattails. In fact, we lost seats in the House. We already had our correction. In 2018, we gained a lot of seats. And in 2020, we lost a bunch of those seats. We've had the correction. So I don't think there's going to be another big swing uh, in the midterms coming up. Whoever wins the House is going to win by a very narrow margin. And there's good reason to believe that we can hold on to the House. We've had one special election in the House, and that was a a New Mexico House seat. And our candidate not only won that race, but outperformed Joe Biden. Uh, And that's important because what it suggests is that in an election in which Donald Trump is not on the ballot, that Democrats are still highly motivated and Republicans are less motivated. Now, I don't know what's going to happen in the Virginia race, and I don't know whether that's as good of a bellwether, uh, I I suspect it is not, as a House midterm. But there is good reason to believe that we can hold on to the House, and it's going to require us all to engage in the kind of effort that Stacey Abrams did in Georgia and do it in all 50 states. We hear a lot about division, and I feel like, I feel almost as if it's irrelevant what is happening in Washington, as far as division goes, I'm more concerned with the division within the American people because I feel as though that needs to be mended in order to allow people to think strategically and also vote in their own best interest instead of just voting because there is an R or a D after a candidate's name. And I think things always have to happen socially before Washington catches up with the political ideology. So I'm wondering what you think we need to do to bridge that gap. Because in my opinion, the hope for American democracy lies so much in the people coming together. And I just don't know how, I don't know how we get there. I think it's a very important question. And, and uh, I think there are a couple of things that we need to do first at the policy level and then at the very people-to-people level. At the policy level, these two bills that we're taking up, the infrastructure bill and the Build Back Better bill, are the most significant investment we've made in the American people, along with the rescue plan since the New Deal. And those are also really important to our democracy because part of the reason why Donald Trump was successful is that millions of people were falling out of the middle class and others were struggling uh, to, to make ends meet and The economy just wasn't working for millions of people. And we need to make sure that it does, because when it doesn't and people are at risk of losing everything, then they're really ripe to listen to the siren song of of a xenophobic populist who's blaming the other, blaming people that don't look like them. So addressing those underlying economic challenges is really important. The other thing, though, is, you know, we have this media environment now in which um, Fox and Newsmax and OAN give Trump supporters an alternate world to live in. And it's very hard to talk to folks who get nothing but that daily diet of misinformation. And I think the only way to overcome it really is by talking to our neighbors again, talking to our family members again. I know that the Trump years have divided families as well as neighbors and neighborhoods. We can't rely on social media, which its algorithms tend to just polarize us further. I think it really requires the the kind of one-on-one conversations that we used to have. What gives you hope? What gives me hope is that there are millions and millions of Americans who love and cherish our democracy, and they far outnumber those who are trying to tear it down right now. 
our country is just hugely resilient. We've been through enormously difficult times before, and we've gotten through them, and we'll get through this. And what we do right now will determine how quickly we can get through this. But I meet so many incredible people in my job, heroic people, everyday heroic people, and they're in every part of the country, and they're what gives me optimism that we're going to get through this. Well, Congressman Schiff, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Great to be with you. And thank you for your tremendous work. And congratulations on, on your, new, your new new book. Our country's ideals are built upon our faith in democracy, the idea that government can actually work for the people. That faith has been tested throughout our history, from the Civil War to economic distress to world wars, injustice, and periods of national tragedy. Yet we have emerged a stronger nation, always striving to achieve a more perfect union. Donald Trump's presidency was a test unlike any other. And while he is no longer president, the roadmap that he left behind for any aspiring autocrat is a danger to all of us. The Protecting Our Democracy Act is our response to this threat. Here's how it would work. First, we will restore accountability and prevent future abuses of power by a president. That means that they won't be able to use their office to enrich themselves or their family. They can't dole out pardons or dangle them to protect themselves. Second, we will restore our system of checks and balances. That means strengthening the enforcement of congressional subpoenas and reasserting the power of the purse. It means strengthening whistleblower protections and the role of inspector generals. Finally, it will protect our elections from foreign interference. Americans must decide American elections. Listen, this isn't about one man. It's about protecting our democracy. And our response has to meet the moment we are in and the catastrophe of the last four years. None of this will be easy. And along with protecting the right to vote, we need to use every lever of power to pass our democracy agenda. Now is our moment to build a democracy that will last for centuries to come. We must seize this moment because our democracy is worth fighting for. Protecting our democracy will take all of us. It's easy to see the dangers at the national level. One only needs to read Adam Schiff's new book or look at any of the footage of the terrorist attack of January 6th to see that. But it's so much more insidious than that. Across the country, people who supported the insurrection are running for school boards and town governments. People who don't believe in democracy are trying to undermine it in our very communities. And you are the way to stop it. We need thoughtful, patriotic Americans to participate in the system. We need people who believe in democracy to defend it by running for office and holding the dangers at bay. In short, we need you. Congressman Schiff and his allies in Congress can fight at the federal level, but you can fight in the places that immediately affect your children and what they are taught. You can fight to be sure your local elections are secure and fair and protected against the corruption of Trumpism. You can be the light in the darkness. Your country needs you. Will you serve? Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson, audio editing and engineering by Mache Lewandowski, and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry, not sorry.